Well, good morning, Vox. It's it's good to be with you on this more stabilized Sunday, hopefully. At the tail end of Black History Month, coming off a crisis enveloped in another crisis. And it happens to also be the second Sunday of Lent. So today we're gonna to be doing uh, something a little different. Uh, today our homily is going to actually be a podcast. And I created some visuals to go along with it. Uh, so you can just listen or you can listen and follow along with the slide deck. I went this direction because I just didn't have it in me to do a traditional homily this week. And I felt like I could do a podcast in a week's time, something that would honor my experience and will hopefully honor and help you process your experience from these past two weeks to help you work through the hardships as well as to solidify the love that swept through your life. So right before I get off here and let the podcast do the rest of the work, um, I just want to say thank you to Jordan Vondahar for offering up some of his photographs, uh, Aaron Inman and Jason Ickpat for offering their time and insight, Brian Mulder for his uh, beautiful music today, as well as, and always, a special thanks to Jonathan Kofal for mixing today's episode. Enjoy. What do you find yourself doing when you are mentally or emotionally disoriented? For me, I go on walks. Therapist Mary Belafato once told me, the body knows in motion what it can't know sitting still. And so I go on walks in order to get more into my body and emotions. I think of disorientation as this mentally and emotionally confused state that we pass through when we move from what we thought life was to how life truly is. It's in the same instance a loss or maybe a grief as well as an expansion beyond what our minds and hearts have grown accustomed to. And what's pretty ironic at the same time the storm started to come into Austin, I was prepping for this homily, and I was stuck. And I couldn't make headway on my first point, revolving around an interaction Peter had with Jesus. So let me give you context, because I think it's pretty important. So Peter is this bold and pretty impulsive dude. And in this interaction in Mark, Eight, Peter and his friends, they've been walking with Jesus this whole time. And they've seen him heal and restore people, feed the hungry, and stand up to religious piety. For Peter, he was in an adventure, a movement. And so when Jesus asked him, who do you say I am? Peter said, you're the Messiah. And Jesus, without skipping a beat, started to tell him that he was going to be rejected by the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, like all the important people, and that he was going to be killed and raised in three days. This was the most open and blunt Jesus had been to this point. And Peter, 
goes and pulls Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus. He rebukes Jesus for talking all of this mess about being rejected and dying. Like, I I can't imagine that he heard anything about resurrection, which is like kind of a big deal and kind of out of the ordinary. So then Jesus in turn rebukes Peter for rebuking him and calls him Satan for not having a mind on divine things. So I'm sitting with all this, right? And I'm just imagining Peter disoriented in all of this. He thought life was going one direction and it took a hard left turn. It was making him reimagine everything he didn't want to. And I couldn't help but think about Peter's disorientation as a, like a necessary breaking of a crust of expectation that he had around all of life. And then I was like, oh, this is good. Now, all I need is an illustration, right? So I started thinking about stories and people. And this was the time that the snow started to fall in Austin. As our friends started uh, to lose power, I was growing frustrated that I couldn't think of an illustration and I was getting stuck. When the temperature started getting into the single digits and pipes all around the city were bursting, I started to get pretty scatterbrained and I forgot what my point even was. And then when our water went out, I had to abandon the homily altogether. I was free falling down Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I had this like quick chuckle to myself. I was like, oh, I'm disoriented. I think I'm living my illustration. These last two weeks in Austin and Texas at large have been disorienting. Many of us weren't expecting to lose heat or water or to be actually like trying to survive. Checking in on friends and family in very real ways. We weren't expecting the entire Texas power grid to be within four minutes of collapsing. Who knew Texas had its own power grid? (laughs) And on the whole, we weren't expecting a crisis wrapped in another crisis. What I realized I needed this, this week, this past week, and what many of my patients needed this past week was to process their unique experience. There's a strand of familiarity that we all experienced, as well as something you experienced that is both unique to your situation as well as your backstory. And to hold both the pain, the confusion, love, and connection together without diminishing any of them, that's a feat. It makes me think of my late friend, Will Gray, who once wrote, we have all rehearsed for the best and worst. They are often one and the same.
So I wanted to open up conversation around holding the two very different experiences together with a couple different folks from the Vox community, Aaron Inman and Jason Ickpat. And after each conversation, I will open up some space for you to process a bit of your own experience as well. The first interview is with Aaron Inman, who's an artist, works within the home, and I'd say is also a neighborhood curator. So let's go there now. Thanks for sitting down with me, Aaron. You're welcome. So my question to you is, did you have a specific moment of disorientation during last week's storm? And if so, what, what followed for you afterward? Sure. I think um, the moment I realized that this was pretty serious was when I gathered the kids up and got them geared up to go outside by putting their feet in plastic bags um, (laughs) before they put their shoes on because we don't have snow gear. And we would do that normally because it's not like we need snow gear in Austin, but I was getting them geared up because we were going to all gather snow together in Rubbermaid containers so that we could melt the snow and then flush our toilets. And I think the idea that it takes so much water to flush a toilet, so much more than I ever thought it would, and it takes a lot of snow to make such little water, I just couldn't believe that this is what we were doing. And it was dirty and disgusting um, and really stressful. And I think after that, it was just kind of the domino effect of anxiety and fear of what other needs that we had that were going to be really difficult, um, like keeping warm or um, having enough water that was drinkable. And um, being renters, I didn't sleep pretty much the entire week because I was so afraid that the pipes were going to burst in this old house that we're in that has a lot of unknowns of, uh, we just don't know how this house was built. So um, I did everything that I could that the internet taught me to do to protect it, but I wasn't confident that we would be okay. And so um, I think even outside our home too, I felt other people's stress and fear um, watching our neighbors scoop snow up and talk about their friends who were across town who didn't have power or water and um, our elderly neighbors who didn't have anyone to check in on them. Um, Just a lot of unknowns if everyone was going to come out of this okay. Um, And so I think I'm still trying to come down from the, I don't know, the adrenaline and the, fear of, are we going to be okay? Are we going to make it through this? And I still feel so tense and anxious, even though I know things are better, at least on our block. Um, But also knowing that things aren't okay in the rest of the city. 
Well, and even even on our block, you you saw an elderly woman getting carried out on a gurney, and yes. we don't know. I was on our walk, and there's an elderly woman that lives on the corner from us, and um, she lives alone. And I saw a fire truck and an ambulance, and she was being carried off. And I still don't know where she is or how she's doing. Um, yeah, I, I worry. I. I've been checking and going by the house every day to see if she's back and she hasn't been. So, you know, it was just a lot, a lot of worry for my own family and then also the people that we love that live around us. And what has been helpful um, in trying to process or come down uh, this week as, as things have kind of been stabilizing? I think I've been talking a lot with our friends and sharing our experiences together has started to help calm my spirit down, just knowing that everybody else is in it with us and they've all experienced the same things. And, um, being outside in the sunshine, I feel like the weather, even though it was so wacky to be in a snowstorm and then three days later, it'd be 80 something degrees outside. I think the sunshine and being out in nature has been super healing for me and the rest of our family. Um, but I think it's just going to be time and I, I don't expect it to be something that heals quickly. At least I don't feel that in my body. It feels still really real and heavy and big. And, you know, you're talking a lot about our neighbors and the block. Um, I'm curious if you had any kind of new experiences with a connection or a gratitude or love that has opened up uh, in this disorientation? Yeah, I mean, I think three, we have three families on our block that we're really close with. Um, and I know that they're there for us. And, you know, in my mind, I've always known cognitively that we have each other's back. But I think this week was the first time that we've actually really needed each other in ways that was more than borrowing a cup of sugar. And I have an appreciation knowing that when things get really messy, um, I know now that they do in fact really love us and love us deeply. And even the people that we don't know, I'm experiencing a new deeper love for them um, that I hadn't before. Yeah, like Grumpy Jerry. Like like he, he was Grumpy Jerry. Stuff on pipes, man. <laughs> <laughs> the guy that never waves at us when we drive by, he's actually incredibly kind and has a wealth of knowledge and eased a lot of my fears about my frozen pipes. So yeah, I mean, you you talk to these people on a regular basis, but it it's that kind of trial and pain that brings you together and gives you a deeper appreciation for who is living on your block and um, I love them all so much more than I did 
two weeks ago. Well, I'm thankful that Erin was willing to share some of her experience. What stood out to me listening to her was not just what happened to her, but also how much she and we were living on the precipice of a lot of what ifs. What ifs for ourselves and what ifs for those around us. Very rarely are these felt so strongly within our bodies. And for many, The coming down experience from this week isn't just about what you did or didn't have to do to survive, which is important, but also what the fear and sense of anxiety touched within you and your story. We have a tendency to compare pain. It's either about winning a weird game of who suffered the most, or it's us calling out our luck and just focusing on others solely. And so I want to create a space right now for you to focus on your experience over the past couple weeks, to name and honor your experience in your particular hardship, to not compare your experience to another, but to just spend time and process your felt emotions during the storm and the week following. What did you experience? What did you feel? And how did it touch your larger story. So if you're comfortable doing so, this time is yours. Now you can take a few deep breaths in and out. Let's move to our second and final interview. This one is with scientist and artist Jason Ickpat. Enjoy. So I'm I'm curious uh, what... Like, how did you experience disorientation, uh, particularly at the beginning of, of the storm? I, I think that it was when I knew I couldn't get groceries. So I, um, I walked into a gas station and the owner of the gas station had like marked the groceries up and beef jerky was $18 what? at this gas station. Wow. Yeah. Um, and uh, my friend, I took my friend to go get some food and he was checking out and his total was $43 like at a mm-hmm. convenience store gas station. 
And so I'm like, I asked the guy, like, hey, did you mark these up? And he's like, yeah. I think he thought that I would be like proud of him for his hustle or something. Mm. Um, and I remember in that moment feeling a sense of um, like confusion, maybe confusion with my emotions. And just, I didn't, I felt like it wasn't right. Like things had been shifted to where not only are we in this difficult situation but we're in a like there's a mindset of like exploitation Mm -hmm. that made me feel and maybe i just expected him not to exploit anyone but it did make me feel very disoriented that the owner attempted to to do that Mm -hmm. yeah and how like how how has that lingered like through the storm through all this stuff um like, how do you find yourself now that the birds are out and chirping and we got 75 degree weather and things have kind of stabilized a little bit? Like, how how are you processing some of that disorientation? Like, what does it look like to come down from that? Or, or even how do you think about it? Yeah, it's interesting now, like when I look at the groceries that I purchased during that time. <laughs> um, and it's like, not even things that I really want to eat anymore, but remembering like how, how thankful I was at the time that I had those. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think coming out of, out of that space, I, I actually maybe feel a little fearful still that one, that people could do that. And two, that there are like no checks (laughs) like we're, really just like someone else's decision away from that kind of exploitation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And denial. Like, yeah. So there's a, there's some fear that's like, there's a residue of fear yeah, and kind of like a, like a really nasty what if mm-hmm. in there. Yeah. But I'm also curious kind of on the other side of the spectrum, like did anything kind of open up for you? Did anything feel like, did you have any kind of experiences of, of love or connection um, or, or gratitude in places you didn't like kind of new places essentially? Yeah, definitely. Um, During the storm, one of my neighbors, just, I guess on the, on the food train of thought that we've been on, one of my neighbors, is a baker and she baked like these treats um and she brought them over her her pipes were like about to burst so she came over to my house for water and she made these treats and she gave them to me freely Mm -hmm. it was such a a beautiful contrast to the 18 dollar beef jerky guy (laughs) (laughs) when i wait like people can't see but you have like a really big smile on your face every time you say treats (laughs) (laughs) that's funny (laughs) um but yeah i I mean i feel like definitely way more grateful for i mean i would have been grateful if she would have brought that to my house before the storm but in that moment and then also still now i feel like there was kind of like a piece of me was carved out to make room for more gratefulness for for that um gesture yeah 
for the treats. For the treats. <laughs> Some of these really tough times bring out the fear and greed in people. $18 beef jerky, energy bills in the thousands. Of course, this interview isn't about beef jerky and treats, though. Jason reminds us what it means to be a neighbor and how these difficult moments bring up new possibilities to be known and to know, to share not only what we have freely, but to also share ourselves freely. It reminds me of what my uncle Craig did for me during the storm. I have always felt his love, but with few words or interactions, a text here or there during the Chiefs game. But when he heard about the dire needs in Austin, he hopped in his pickup and he drove 12 hours with supplies to Austin for us. He left so fast he forgot his coat. He unloaded the supplies in 20 minutes and get this, he just turned around and left. (laughs) He left for home because he needed to beat the overnight freezing weather. And it just, it breaks my brain and my conception of his love for me. And I just don't even know what to do with it yet. This second space I want to open up for you is to take time now to consider what you experienced. The love, the connection or gratitude, maybe in a place or a person that you hadn't seen or considered before. Take time to name, honor, and explore how this love impacted you. Once again, let's take a deep breath 
And as you do that, just notice what you're feeling. Most likely, what you're feeling, I would call the Spirit of God. Kelly Brown Douglas is an Episcopal priest, an author of Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies, and the Justice of God. She believes that God speaks to us as a dynamic, restless force in our world. And she came up with the acronym to help others with this question. How are we to speak of God? The acronym is WORD, which may be a little cheesy, but please don't check out on me here because it's really good. So while the acronym is WORD, it's actually helping us to move away from just words and move into the embodiment of them, right? So let's go through them. The W is worthy. And I love how she starts this off because a lot of people would talk about the worthiness of God, right? All the while struggling ourselves with a felt sense of unworthiness or maybe casting that out onto others. She says that we are gods and that makes us worthy and sacred, full stop. She writes this, that it cannot be said enough. There is no human being that is not worthy, worthy of being treated with a divine dignity, even as they are worthy of acting with divine dignity. Put simply, what we expect from ourselves, we should expect from one another. And what we expect from each other, we should expect from ourselves. It is an expectation of worthiness. Now the O is interesting. The O is opportunistic, which I kind of have a negative connotation with, but I love her idea around it. She says time is precious and it's not because it's some fleeting thing, but because uh, she thinks that time is, is kind of like being pregnant with all the possibility of God's love. She says, so at all times and in each time, we have the opportunity to speak love that is God, which means at all times and in each time, we are to be nothing less than loving. That we seize these moments. The R is for receptive. To speak about God means for us to also be receptive to God's forgiving grace. To be human is to mess up. We can't avoid sin. She says, forgiveness frees us. And she writes, it frees us to grow into our better selves. It frees us to believe in ourselves the way that God believes in us. And that is to believe that we are good and that we can be who God has called us to be. And so we are to be receptive to God's forgiving grace as it applies to ourselves and, here's the trick, to others. In doing so, we speak about God. And the last letter is daring. Um, the, she writes this, we must dare to live proliptically which is anticipation as if God's promised future is already 
She says that we are to live as if bigotry and fear and stereotypes and hateful isms that separate us from one another are no more. Even if these are the ways that the world does not act, she says that we must be daring enough to make them the way of our living. So I share Douglas's words because I believe them to be a tangible way for us to focus on the divine and to embody divinity in our everyday lives. In this way, humanity and divinity are interwoven, which is the picture of Jesus and what he sacrificed for. And her words give us a framework to see our experience that much of what we grieve is leaders being the wrong kind of opportunistic, seeing systems that don't count others worthy, or maybe being confused or apathetic to our own role in such affairs. And this also helps explain the loveliness of what opened up for us in these last few weeks, to see where love and connection showed up in new places and new possibilities. I saw daring people. I felt the worthiness, the urgency, and anticipation. I saw people show up in their better selves to show me my own. This is the word of God spoken. And it so frustratingly often comes by a way of disorientation a breaking of the mind a bit, and sometimes a breaking of the heart. But little by little, or sometimes all at once, there's a breaking open where our lives expand. Our world expands. And God's love expands. And rightly so. Jason Reynolds, author of For Everyone, writes this, that this letter is being written from the inside, from the front lines and the fault line, from the uncertain thick of it all, from a man with a straight line mouth and an ego with a slow leak, from a man doing it the only way he knows how, splitting his cries and his smiles right down the middle. Swallowing his moonshine mistakes while in the sunlight his sweat irrigates his life and that life he, like you, has been tilling, hoping there's a harvest coming. Let me pray. In the struggle of last week's storm, may we honor, not diminish, the pain and how it touched our stories. May we learn to give ourselves grace in these spaces as you first gave to us. To continue processing and connecting, listening, and sharing. 
and in the once void spaces of our lives that are now filled with gratitude, love, and connection, we give you thanks. To encounter the good news of love on the ground and all over Austin, where peers, chefs, and emergency service workers were all acting in the royal priesthood. Counting one another worthy and daring to love in the face of trials and fear. We thank you for them. Bringing forth love that always resided in us and between us because of you, our source. This is divinity and divinity within us. In the love of the Father, the endurance of the Son, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen.